I have good news for you this morning. It's from Matthew chapter 28, the first gospel in the New Testament, verses 1 through 10. And out of reverence for God and His holy word, would you stand for the reading? Dear friends, hear the glorious good news. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, don't be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, just as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he's been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him. This is my message for you. And so they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. I have a new friend in this church whose name is Ray Bailey, who is a retired chaplain and minister, Sunday school teacher here, and works for one of our board's agencies in the United Methodist Church in Music City. He shared with me a story recently of a particular actor who was playing the part of Jesus in a passion play in Arkansas in the Ozarks. And apparently on this particular day, he was carrying the cross up the hill when a tourist began heckling him and making fun of him and shouting insults at him. And the actor playing the part of Jesus took as much as he could. And finally, he was so irritated that he threw the cross down, went over to the man and punched his lights out. After the play, the director was indignant, and he said, I, I know the man was a pest, but I cannot condone what you've done. You're playing the part of Jesus, for heaven's sake, and Jesus never retaliated. It can't happen again. He promised it would never happen again. But the next day, in part, again, carrying the cross up the Via Dolorosa, the same heckler was in the group worse than before, harassing Jesus, and he lost it again and just gave him an uppercut and brought him to his knees. The director again came out and said, I'm going to have to let you go. We can't have this. You can't behave this way in the part of Jesus. The actor begged, give me one more chance. I need this job. I want this part. And the director, being gracious, gave him one more chance. The next day, he's carrying the cross again up the hill. And sure enough, it's the same heckler that's insulting him. He tried his best to control himself. He was clenching his fist. He was grinding his teeth. And finally, this Jesus put the cross down gently, went over to the heckler, 
pointed his finger in his face and said, meet me in the parking lot after the resurrection. (laughs) Now, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but not all versions of this story are exactly alike. I mean, even in the Gospels, and there are four Gospels in the New Testament, they're not all exactly alike. In fact, Matthew, the text that we've just read, is the only one of the four Gospels, the only one of the four narratives in the New Testament that mentions surveillance at the tomb. Apparently, the religious authorities were so concerned about Jesus and friends that they felt it necessary to ramp up security at the graveyard. They wanted to make sure that there was no monkey business at the tomb of Jesus. They were so paranoid about the followers, about the disciples, thinking that they might become grave robbers or body snatchers and fake news would result. And so they went to the prefect, to Pilate, to ask him to beef up some security. The last verse of chapter 27, right before what we just read, says, verse 66, And the chief priest and the authorities went with the Roman guards and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. Now, what you may not know is that to seal the stone, to put the Roman seal on the stone, if you break that seal, it's a capital crime punishable by death. So if the grave robbers get through the guards, which they wouldn't, if they break the seal, they're dead men. And so what the authorities are doing now, essentially, is they're doubling down on death. They want to make sure this is the end of the story. It's only in Matthew. Another piece that's unique to this gospel is the bit after resurrection, where the Roman guards go back to the authorities and report what actually happened. And the chief priests give the guards, watch this, a large sum of money, we would call it hush money today, and they fabricate, they concoct a tale. They say, here's our story. You fell asleep at the grave, the disciples came and stole the body, and that'll be the end of it. Isn't it interesting how some things never change? If the truth doesn't fit your agenda, You just changed the narrative, and they did. They paid top dollar. And if you do the math on what happened according to Matthew, get this, it cost more to suppress the resurrection message than it did to engineer the crucifixion. I mean, they put Jesus away for 30 shekels and a wad of cash would keep him in the tomb. Talk about collusion. Just follow the money. There's a conspiracy. Now, what makes this Easter message so believable, personally to me, is that there is no collusion in the gospel writers. There is no attempt by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to synchronize, to harmonize the details of Easter Sunday. They're not all alike. They differ in specifics, but the premise is the same. That tomb was empty, and Jesus wasn't there. 
It was a tremor, says Matthew, an earthquake, he says. It's interesting because something similar happened on Good Friday, didn't it? Matthew says the earth shook and the rocks came unglued and even the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. In other words, the dividing line between God and humanity has been broken, ripped apart from the divine side, not from the human side, from top to bottom. And so what Matthew's trying to say is, look, there's a seismic shift that's happening now in creation because the tomb is empty. There's another detail I love in this text. Did you notice that after the angel rolled back the stone, what did the angel do to the stone? He sat on it. I love that detail. What's he doing? He's savoring the victory. He's he's spiking the football. He's flipping the bat. And aren't you glad to know that some angels have a swag about them? This guy has an attitude. He sat on it. He's taunting death. And the Scripture doesn't say it, but the Revised Chapel Version says that this angel sitting on this rock taunting death is also taunting Rome's finest who are paralyzed with fear as if to say, bring it. Meet me in the parking lot. I love an angel with an attitude. The women in every gospel, they were first to discover the empty tomb. This cocky angel says to them, you don't have to be afraid anymore. We know you were there on Friday. You saw it. You don't have to be afraid. I know what you're looking for, but he isn't here. He's been raised just as he said. You see that? Did you know that everything that happens on that Paschal weekend is just as he said? He's keeping his word. Come see the place where he lay. And watch this. The women go inside, and when they see the empty tomb, they are given a mission. Now, this is key. We don't often talk about it at Easter, but in Matthew's Easter account... Easter always brings with it a mission, and here it is. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has been raised and is going ahead of them and will meet them in Galilee. And what was the women's response? They took off. They ran to tell the good news. They didn't dawdle. They didn't hesitate. They ran. There's an urgency in their feet. There's an immediacy in their response. Now, I don't know if I have, have I ever told you all about my love for Radnor Park? Have I mentioned that to you? Some of you share that with me. I call this park the original sanctuary. I love to walk. I love to walk at Radnor. I was walking this week and I noticed that they're having a financial campaign there. And I love their slogan. The tagline is this, check this out. Put your money where your feet are. Boy, that'll preach. Put your money where your feet are. And that's exactly what the women did on that Easter sunrise. It's a wonderful thing when Jesus comes into your heart. But it's a magnificent thing when Jesus gets into your feet. Some of my friends call it happy feet. 
When Jesus gets into your hands and your feet, he not only changes the rhythm, the pace of your life, but he redirects your path. He changes everything. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but over the last several years, Nashville has gotten a little congested. You notice that? And out on the highway, everybody's in a hurry. You see this road rage everywhere. Sometimes you see a little road rage in the church parking lot too, and that's a shame. Everybody's in a hurry. And I know, I know you hate to hear it, but occasionally I'll say, it reminds me of Atlanta in the 90s. And they'll say, why don't you move back? Everybody's in a hurry. But it occurs to me that it really doesn't matter how fast you're moving if you're going in the wrong direction. It doesn't matter. I've noticed there's a rage in our culture right now. Some of you, besides having a watch, you have a wristband on your other arm too, and you're counting your steps. I've noticed that. What do you, you call it a Fitbit, don't you? It's kind of the rage today. And I suppose it's a good thing to number your steps. Maybe it helps you with your insurance, medical insurance. I hope it does. I, I've been looking for me a Fitbit, but I don't want the kind that you have. I'm looking for something a little different. I want one that doesn't count my steps. I want one that changes my direction. If you find one of those, pick it up for me. I'll reimburse you. And that's exactly what the gospel does. It doesn't count your steps. It doesn't measure your steps. It reorders your steps. The psalmist says it like this, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. When these women see for themselves the empty tomb, they do a 180. They came to the cemetery trudging and they left sprinting. You know why? Because they're on a mission. They're on a mission. My wife tells others, I can tell on the Sundays when, when my husband is preaching because he gets up a little earlier and he studies a little longer and his footsteps are a little louder and he's, his gait is a little wider. Why? Because I'm on a mission. And these women, when they saw this, there's a 180. And watch this. As they are going in obedience to the angel's message, Jesus meets them. Now, you could stop right there and preach on that point alone. The women don't encounter Jesus before they go, but as they go in obedience. That's the way it works, isn't it? That's often the way it works for us. Jesus reveals himself in the mission, not before, but in the mission, when you take that step in obedience, Jesus shows up. It was true for me. I was 16 years old, and I went with my youth group on a mission trip to Farmington, New Mexico, and later to Okeechobee, South Florida. And it was in South Florida in a mission to Native American, to, to Indians, that I experienced Jesus in that mission in an unforgettable and transforming way. Changed my life. I haven't been the same since. 
And it didn't happen simply by sitting in a sanctuary, although that's critical to our faith. It happened in serving in a circumstance of need. And it's happened to some of you. Some of you who went to Beirut a few months ago, you didn't take Jesus there. He was already there waiting on you. It happened for some of you in South Africa. It happened for the youth on the Bahamas trip. Jesus met you there in the mission. You don't have to go overseas. It happens at Harvest Hands in South Nashville. It happens in healing housing. It happens when you're in ministry through our adoption ministry, a room at the end, or any of that. Jesus comes when we go. Jesus reveals himself in our going. In fact, it happened last Saturday here. There was a dad who told me about it this week. He said, uh, they came to Rise Against Hunger. He said, I brought my kids, these young kids. It was early on Saturday morning. They didn't want to get up. And he said, the whole way to the church to prepare these 100,000 meals for needy neighbors, the whole way to the church, he said, the kids were, were just complaining all the way there. Do we have to go, Daddy? Do we have to go? And he said, a funny thing, at the end of the mission, when we were finishing, they were saying, Dad, do we have to leave? Do we have to leave? And that's how it is when Jesus shows up in our steps. When Jesus gets into your feet, he changes your heart. And that's what happened to the women. They saw Jesus in their going, and when they see him, what do they do? They take hold of his feet. They fall at his feet. What does that mean? It's the language of worship. They fall at his feet. Turns out that worship and mission go hand in hand. You can't separate them. In fact, mission is a form of worship. It was N.T. Wright who said it. Worship is love on its knees before the beloved. And mission is love on its feet to serve the beloved. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Put your money where your feet are. And then Jesus greets them in the mission. Karete is the word. It can mean hi. That's an interesting first word, isn't it, for Jesus? Hello. It may mean shalom, but I think it really means rejoice. That's the word. That when Jesus sees these women, he says rejoice. And then he says, he echoes almost verbatim the same thing that the angel said. We'll meet in Galilee, he says. Now, what you need to know is the mention of Galilee is not just geographical, it's theological, it's missional, it's strategic. Because in ancient days, northern Israel was called the Galilee of the Gentiles, or some called it the Galilee of the nations because it was so diverse. Others called it the doorway to the world. So when you see Galilee in Matthew, it's code for Gentile country. And what it means here is the gospel is about to go global with the witness of Jesus. Now it won't just be preached in your own tribe. 
It won't just be preached to the Jews, but to Gentiles, to Romans, to Greeks. In fact, it's not accidental that the very next passage after the empty tomb is called the Great Commission where the risen Christ shows himself to his friends and says, go, there it is, mission, go, and make disciples of all nations. The word nations in Greek is ethne. It's our word for ethnic, ethnicity. It means people groups. And when you see Galilee, it means that every tribe, every race, every clan, the mission is going viral And in fact, Jesus' last word, according to Matthew, the very last word he says to them, Matthew 28, 20, lo, I will be with you always as you go. In the mission, when Jesus gets in your feet, he's going to walk by your side. There's one other thing I want to mention that's worth noting. When the women encounter Jesus in the mission, Jesus' words, as I mentioned, are almost verbatim, with one exception. The angel said, go tell his disciples that he'll meet them, but Jesus doesn't say that. He says, go tell my brothers that I'll meet them. You say, what's the big deal? What's the difference? It's a big difference between disciples and brothers. I mean, think with me for a moment. Think of what Jesus might have said after Good Friday. He might have said to the women, go tell those traitors that I'm going to meet them in the parking lot. He might have said, go tell those turncoats, go tell those defectors, go tell those ex-disciples, but he doesn't say that. He says, go tell my brothers. And friend, that's a game changer. That's reconciliation. To call them brothers means that Jesus does not define us by our last mistake. He doesn't define you by your betrayals. He doesn't define me by my past sin. This is a Christ who specializes in marred clay. This is a Jesus who specializes in flawed people. God recalls and restores faulty parts and just puts us on our feet again. And I tell you, this news in the ears of these disciples not only means there's life after death, it means there's life after life. Life after the disappointment. Life after the mess, after the betrayal, after the disillusionment. To be called friend means there's life even after life. In fact, it reminds me a little bit of John 15, verse 15. In the farewell section on the night before Jesus gave his life, he said, no longer do I call you slaves servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But from now on, I call you friends, brothers, for everything I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. He calls you friend. One other word and I'm finished. Last week was Palm Sunday. It was a great day here. 
four worship services. I was running after the awakening service, as I often do, up the balcony to my, uh, to my office to re-robe. We were running a little bit late last week. I think it was because of the long-winded choir. But anyway, we were running late. And, and so I ran to the office and quickly put on my fine robe and put on my purple stole. And I was coming down the steps, uh, getting ready to process in for worship, and I spotted her. It's a little three-year-old girl. She might be four. I think she's three years old. And she had been standing there watching me the whole time in all of this glory, in all this regalia. She was just spellbound by the robe and the stole. She was looking directly at me. And I went over to her, and I leaned over and hugged her, and she was just in awe for a moment. Her mouth was agape, and she was looking at the robe and the stole, and this is what she said, are you a king? Now, for a moment, I thought the idea had some merit. I mean, it did a lot for my self-esteem, just to be honest with you. Are you a king? And I kind of chuckled and I said, no, sweetie, I'm not, but I know one. <laughs> I know one. I'm no king. If anything, I'm more of a pawn, really. Some of you are a rook, a knight, or a bishop. Maybe there's a queen in the congregation. But if I'm to be honest with you, I'm kind of a pawn myself. But I know a king. He has a crown, and it's made of thorns. And he calls me friend. Can you believe it? <laughs> he calls you brother and sister. And this morning, he has a mission with your name on it. And he will meet you in the going. He's not going to count your steps. He'll do something better. He'll reorder your steps. And he won't just change the pace. He'll change your path. I know a king. We call him king of kings and lord of lords. And his kingdom has no end. And today is a day, if ever there was a day, friend, to put your money where your feet are. To the glory of the risen friend who is with us even to the end of the age. Glory to God. Amen.